Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever spent a significant amount of time just reflecting on the gospel? Have you ever spent time meditating on the ins and outs, the particulars, the the large scope and the details of the gospel? The reality that the one true holy God is not abandoning his people, but has rescued them by Jesus' death and resurrection for himself. Have you ever meditated and thought about and considered the, the liberating effect that even though men and women are separated from God in our own sin, sinfulness, the Holy Spirit awakens dead hearts, hearts that are seen by the scriptures to look like stones. And yet the Spirit involves himself in such a way that stony hearts become warm and receptive hearts to the mercy of God. And in repenting or returning by you taking that action of calling on God, receiving God as your Savior, God accepts you. Think about that. You, a a sinful, naturally sinful person, in God's grace and God's love, you are accepted by God. The, The Bible says that you are justified by God. God declares you justified. He doesn't think about your sin, but looks at what Christ did for you. Do you ever think about that? And does it change the way you think about everything else? Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's really incredible to think about all those those gospel passages that so clearly tell us all of what God has done for us despite ourselves. We have nothing to boast in. He's so gracious and kind that he's involved himself so heavily in our lives that he saves people. That truth changes everything. And again and again, we see in the scriptures particular truths of that gospel under attack. And it's not amazing that they're under attack. Of course they're under attack. But what's so incredible, we would see on this side of Scripture, it's incredible that people hear those attacks. They listen to the assault. They, they take it inside and they start wondering, well, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe the gospel that saved me isn't all that there is to be. Maybe there's more that I have to do or maybe less that I have to do. One of my favorite things to consider or study or listen to other people preach about is that God has justified people by their faith alone, not by their works. We, didn't, we aren't doing things for ourselves in order that God may be satisfied, but he was satisfied by Jesus and Jesus' works. Justification is God's loving and full deliverance from the wrath of sin of all who believe in Christ. This is not anything worked out in them or done by them on their own account, but on the account of the obedience and the satisfaction of Christ's work. It's an act of God by which he fully equips, acquits us all from our sins. 
And it's amazing to think that we could never do this on our own, yet he does all of this for us. But can you believe after hearing this, and maybe many of you agreeing with this and knowing this and and taking it in and having your life fully transformed, that people are swept up into practicing the opposite. In one of the first doctrinal conflicts in church history, we see a battle royale of Judaizers against believing Gentiles. Gentiles in multitudes are being led into faith by God's gracious work, but others are telling them, it's like they're creeping in the villages and telling them and persuading them that they are not in or secure with Christ unless they live a certain way first or to the fullest extreme unless they practice physical circumcision. So what we'll see in our text tonight, or what I hope to expose to you from our text tonight, is that Paul writes to people he knows. Paul is writing to people he loves. Paul is writing to people who he has great concern for. And Paul's also writing to people who in many ways know exactly what Paul is going to be writing about. And he's writing, in an effect, to correct them quickly and strongly to remind them, to refresh them that they are not justified by works. So stop hoping in that. Stop resting in that. Stop listening to people who say that they're preaching a different gospel. There is no other gospel but the one true gospel from the Lord. So when you think about kind of the the context of this passage or the tone of this book, you might be led to think that, well, in Thessalonians, Paul has this very kind personality of encouraging Christians. And in Romans, he has this, this, uh, I would say, an even kill, like just wonderfully calm explanation, but almost with a lot of volume behind it. And here we have in Galatians, we have Paul in this short letter that you can read in one sitting, this power punch of the glory of the gospel. Nothing about the gospel that they had previously believed in had been done away with And he's telling them that the rumors, not only about the gospel of which he had previously preached to them, but also the reality of of his authority to give them the gospel or his authority as an apostle, that hasn't changed either. So what we have are are a bunch of people who had previously said that they believed in the gospel hearing two things. One, they were hearing the wrong thing. And then two, Paul isn't necessarily who he says he is. And you should listen to us instead of listening to him. We have a unique truth to tell you. So I want you to see in this passage that the gospel is under attack. And Paul is defending it by saying that the gospel is from God. It's not under the authority of man. And it distinguishes itself from other false gospels by aiming its credit at God's glory, not man's glory. So I want you to turn to the book of Galatians. I tricked you by reading Romans first. The the book of Galatians in the first chapter, and I'll be reading from verses 11 through verse 24. So in the book of Galatians, God's word says to us, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of a former life, or you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. 
But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And when I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. So I think what we will see in this passage, or what I hope you will see in this passage, is that the gospel itself is under attack in this area. But not only is the gospel under attack, but also the authority of one of God's apostles. He too is under attack. And, and I think what's happening is you have in verse 11 this, this hanging thread that allows Paul's argument to be released out from under it. So just to recap, in verse 11 it says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So what I think Paul is doing is in three ways giving a proof or a couple of proofs of the gospel. And when I say proof, I know some antennas are popping up. You're thinking, I do not like geometry. And that is so sad because geometry is wonderful. You know, wheels and triangles and squares and all that, volume and whatever. I've forgotten all the equations. But one of the most annoying things that I remember from geometry is you actually had to prove your answer. You couldn't just look at it and go, well, it's about five, you know, or there are four sides to a square. Everyone knows that. You actually had to prove it using different methods and different equations and showing your answer. And so what I think Paul is doing is not just saying something, but is backing it up. He's saying that the gospel that was preached by him is not man's gospel. And the first way he does that is by saying that the gospel is not of man, but is from God. So first... The gospel is not of man. There were many Gentile believers now in this area, something that would certainly raise the tension of either Jewish believers or Judaizers, people who were expressing joy in salvation, not by works, but singularly by the grace of God. They didn't have to do things in order to get into heaven because Christ had done all for them. And it changed them to where they would see him uniquely. And that was giving great pause to many around them. But Paul is telling them that there is no standing that he would have with this gospel unless this gospel was from God. You can't have a true gospel if it's from man. So in verse 12 he says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying he wasn't learning this in any capacity, but he received it directly from the Lord. He didn't receive gospels from others. It was not from man. It was from God. But he would also, in some ways, and in other parts of the Bible, he would say, how could this be from man? For man is ultimately sinful. We're ultimately prideful people. We're ultimately concerned most about ourselves. And we certainly wouldn't 
create or make up a gospel saying that someone outside of us would have to save us. We would probably naturally create a gospel that would say, I can actually save myself if I work hard enough or if I achieve enough things or if I do certain things. That's the instinct of all of us. We're always grasping for more. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What did the Lord provide for Adam and Eve in the garden? Dominion over the whole world. Dominion over all the creatures. And he told them that to avoid the tree that would have knowledge of good and evil. And they're looking around and they must have heard the Lord say that everything is very good and good. But there was something about that tree that they didn't currently have that they really wanted. And we are the same way today. There's always something that we want to do for ourselves. But the gospel is different in that acknowledging that we can't do everything or anything on our own accord because we naturally are inclined to sin. Nor would we ever create a gospel that would have judgment against us. I mean, one of the, one of the important and scary, honestly, things about the reality of God's grace is that it also has God's righteous judgment alongside it. Man wouldn't create that. It has to be from God. Putting faith in ourselves is what we would do. But the gospel that Paul is preaching is actually putting our faith and our hope in God. So there were other people around him who were undermining Paul. They were uh, Judaistic people who were influencing others by claiming that by works and by righteous deeds could man enter into God's good graces. And they were doing this by claiming this is actually what the Old Testament scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, what the scriptures would teach. But ultimately, historically, they weren't even correct on that. It would be like saying, hey, I want you to tell me all about the book of Ephesians. And you hadn't even read the book of Ephesians, but you read a couple of commentaries about the book of Ephesians. You might get some things correct, but let's just go to the source. You know, do I want to watch the weather in the sky or do I hope that I have a good enough data plan to check my weather app? And what if it's updating or what if it's, you know, all of a sudden the storm stops and we run out of Wi-Fi and it's like, well, I have a lot of information, more than I would normally have if I didn't have this. So they were putting their trust in people who were ultimately putting their trust in something they didn't even have. And he would say that this is no gospel It's not of man. So people who are coming in and saying that they have answers from other men or from some other way, they need to be dealt with seriously and rebuked and left. And he's also saying he didn't make up the gospel himself. It wasn't from him, but it was from God. Paul's message of salvation to the Gentiles didn't have human origins in it. And how does he back up his claim? In part by describing his past. He's showing and explaining his past that nothing in his past would anticipate or predict the path that he would pursue in proclaiming a ritual-free or works-free gospel. Look at what he does in verse 13. So he says that his gospel is not from man, but it was revealed to him by Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So he was grounding, in effect, his explanation of why his gospel was not only not from him, but it was from God by just 
asking them to look at who he used to be and who Paul used to be. Would any of that go towards a ritual-free or works-based righteousness? Paul was described and described himself as a zealous person. We think of a zealous person, what do you think of? In Paul's case, he was being reminded of his previous work where he persecuted the church violently. One of the, one of the words there, it actually literally means chopping ahead. So we might imagine, you know, clearing your way through a forest or, or fighting your way through a crowd of people. The violence that he would invoke on God's people was tremendous. And he tried to not just remove the church from a political sphere, a social sphere, but he tried to destroy the church. He hated what they stood for. He hated what they were doing. If you just are reminded of what happens in Acts 8 and through Acts 9, Paul, most easily described, was a bad, bad man. Like You did not want to get in his way. You, you might be reminded of old westerns where the bad guy would come on the scene and the sound would change and it would get a little bit dark and they would always come in from the left because apparently that's what happens in films when bad people come in a scene. Paul was known by people around him as a, as a violent persecutor of the church and he's saying nothing about his past would cause him to make up a gospel like he's preaching. And he was not only a persecutor, but he was a religious fanatic advancing beyond my own age he said you would say that he would be the top of his class the later later text that he would describe himself in Philippians 3 says that he was circumcised on the eighth day he was fully Jewish from the tribe of Benjamin he was the Hebrew of Hebrews he was a pure keeper of the Pharisee law he had tremendous zeal and when it came to how well he kept the law he described himself as blameless in the way that these letters would be circulated, if there was any blame to put on him, people would have said so. So he is the best at what he used to do. In another letter, he refers to himself as a blasphemer against Christianity, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. He was progressing in all of this, developing immorally and spiritually beyond any of, pe of the people around him. And from the passage that Ryan preached this past Sunday, he lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of his own religion. So bringing this all up, Paul is saying, when it comes to his past in Judaism, not only was he the best at that, but he does all that, you could say, because he's arguing that there is no way that he would ever concoct this gospel. It's not from him. It has to be from God unless something traumatic changed him so this is important because socially economically or practically he has nothing to gain by leaving judaism and he has everything to lose so what does paul want his readers to see that his message his new life what he's defending with all of his life is only the result of a divine intervention it's not from the inside of him it's not from other people around him but it's from above the gospel that gives him, the, the gospel that he gives is the only gospel that can save, and it's from above. So I just want to simply ask, if you're here and you're not a Christian, do you honestly ask yourself what you believe? You probably do in certain ways. Do you ask yourself where it comes from? Maybe. Do you ask yourself what that's going to get you in life? 
And every time you go to a funeral or you hear about someone passing away, does that make you wonder about what you believe and where it came from and what it's ultimately going to become? Friend, I just want to invite you to understand and hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing inside of you that can save you. There is nothing about what you do that can ultimately justify yourself before a holy God. In the, in the minute details, we are sinful. In the big scope of things, we are just not good enough. And so I just want to encourage you to, to think about what the gospel is. Jesus invites people to the gospel. He invites people to the gospel who are so far off, and you might think of yourself as way too far off or not understanding enough. And I just want to encourage you that's not the case. Just be reminded of who Paul was here. So if you normally come here on Sundays, this would be like the, the 50th time that we've heard about Paul's conversion, right? And every time I'm just reminded and refreshed of the mercy of God up against the sinfulness of man. And friend, you are not too far off to see God for who he is. And you are not too far off for God to save you if you call on him. So Paul says that the gospel was preached by him as not man's gospel. But he also says, secondly, that the gospel doesn't change. So the gospel is not of man, and the gospel doesn't change. Look at verse 15. Set apart directly from God to preach the gospel, the only gospel, we see a man who is completely captured by God. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul's conversion recap is for the sake of his apostolic authority. He's basically telling people that the gospel that he's preaching was also the gospel that saved him. He didn't save himself. He didn't do enough things to be in the mercy seat of God, but God intervened in his own life. And then he explains where he went after that, but almost like you would take, you know, some of you might actually take, you know, your Bible on your phone or on your iPad and like zoom in on different pictures or, or zoom in on different texts if you're having trouble reading things. There are so many amazing punches in these couple of verses that I want to biblically zoom in on a couple of these because I think in understanding these, these kind of big doctrinal issues, it actually explains why he goes from, you know, the Lord saved him to then all of a sudden he goes to Damascus and all these other places. Look at verse 15, it said, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, Something huge is happening in Paul's life here biographically. You see God specifically knowing him before he was even born, setting him apart for God's own use. And to help people understand the Bible, sometimes we use words and we put them in categories that we call systematic theology, where we look at doctrines in part to understand what the scripture says, but also in in my opinion, most, most notably, we put them into certain categories because it greatly encourages us. It's so gracious and kind to see that God elects this sinner who was so far off. And that not only does he elect him or choose him, but he actually knew him before he created anything else. 
He had set me apart before I was born. This is so gracious and kind of the Lord. So in God's perfect will and plan, he chooses Paul from before all time. It it reminds us of what's written about in Romans 9, where reflecting on passages from the Old Testament, it says, For God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And we see that Paul is saying that the gospel that I preach is from God. And another way to say that is God actually intervened in my life and knew me before I was even born. This idea of God knowing us and choosing us often is seen as something to argue over. But more than that, it is is one of the most encouraging and humbling things about the scriptures. That the all-knowing God knows people. And he knows you before you even knew yourself. He knows you before you even got mad at your mom when you were three years old. And under his own desire, he chose to love you and pull you close to himself. The verse continues and it says, And who called me by his grace? But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, we see this effectual call of God intervening in Paul's life. Now, the term effectual call, it's a 17th century phrase, and it was popularized in something called the Westminster Confession. Now, what I tried to do for about 30 minutes today is is kind of put it in my own words because I thought I could describe something that people long ago couldn't describe as well. But let me just read for you what they said because I tried really hard. I'm like, you know what? They have good ideas. So all those... Think about about God's love as I'm reading this. Think about God's love particularly towards his people. All those whom God had predestined unto life and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Now, how is this happening? By enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Friend, there is no other way for you to go to Christ unless he summons you to himself. And that is really good news when we are reminded that we are sinful and we are not naturally not seeking a savior except for ourselves. But God in his love and his mercy is not satisfied with his people drowning or being dead in their sins, but he calls them to himself. The power of God is not just in force, but it's also in love. He effectually saved Paul, he effectually saved Paul. And he continues as if it couldn't get any better. Look at verse 16. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This idea of God regenerating man after that moment of calling him, this concept of God renovating a heart, the core of a person's being, once in sin, now alive, by implanting a new principle of desire a new purpose, a new action finds expression in man's faith and repentance towards God. 
So by God's love and his particular desire to see men and women become alive in him and respond to him, he calls them to himself and imparts on them a new heart to the point where they look at him and they go, I need you. We're reminded of what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. Some people say that when Paul was blinded there, it was just a supernatural light or this you know, atomic explosion in the sky. I remember a couple years ago, some, something over Russia, like what are those things that fly through the air? Asteroids. It, it went into the atmosphere and exploded and, and windows exploded and cars tipped over and maybe that's what happened to Paul. But no, Christians know that is not just what happened to Paul. It was not just a bright light in front of him, but also that bright light that was in front of him was ultimately his savior. And this is where Paul responds in repentance and in faith when the Lord reveals himself to Paul. The revelation that Jesus gives him was not just light or insight, but the revelation was the gospel of Jesus himself. So we see here, just in recap, we see that Paul was set apart Chosen from the womb, called, and Christ was revealed to him. Now, Paul is a unique character in all of Scripture. You'd be, you'd be in a danger zone to think that you are like him in many ways. But what happens here in Paul's capacity is actually not that unique when you compare it to what happens to other Christians when they were once dead and are now alive. I mean, those words that Paul is describing of what God did to him. I mean, just, just recap it for yourself. Verse 15, And when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might be of service to him. If you're a believer in Jesus, that, that is your biography. That, that is what the angels are happy about when the Lord saves his people. And so earlier I asked you, do do you ever reflect or meditate on the gospel? In the low points in life, in the high points in life, in the fun times in life, and in the super sad times in life. Do you remind yourself of your biography? At least how God sees it. You can keep scrolling through Instagram to receive happiness and joy. Or you can reflect on the God of the universe calling you to himself. And he wanted to. It wasn't an accident. And it brings you ultimate joy and satisfaction. Paul's timeline or Paul's conversion gives us confidence where we can look back and marvel at all that God has done by Christ's death and the Spirit's illumination. Yet Paul is super significant, isn't he? Paul is shown to look, at least in this passage and other passages about Paul and the way that Paul describes himself in other places, which to be true, what he looks like is... Well, a prophet of the Lord. Or in the New Testament form, an apostle. Someone called out by God for a particular service, for a particular way. When you think about the scope of history, Paul certainly stands out, and he should. How God is using him to reach God's people was was even a mystery to him and certainly a mystery to other people around him and who would know him. Yet we see God's kingdom expanding bit by bit in ways that, that we, we might not have noticed, except Paul was used by God. How he's being used, it was certainly offensive to others, but it's so, so encouraging to us even today. For the Spirit regenerated Paul's heart 
revealed Christ to him and guided him as he wrote letters to churches and set up churches and certainly out, outlined what, what churches should look like and what a Christian should look like and what pastors should look like. His letters encouraged people. They rebuked us where we needed to be rebuked. They enlighten the people of God. They clarify the particulars of the gospel. They pointed people ultimately to the glory of God. And he did things, he did these things not as a pen pal. He didn't do these things as a wide sage, but he did these things as an apostle. So he's saying that the gospel that he's preaching is not of man, but is something that's so unique and just his testimony gives that case. But ultimately in this, in this situation, he's not being believed as an apostle from God with a message from God. Now, if you don't believe that Paul is an apostle or a unique messenger of God, someone who when you read his letters, you should, you should read them and understand them and see them as scripture you discount a lot of what is in the scriptures. Today, people discount Paul all the time. He's certainly culturally irre- irrelevant. People determine what he clearly says, and they might even say, well, he clearly does say that, but he wouldn't say that today given all the circumstances around us. The, the tenets of the faith that he would notably describe, things like marriage, sexuality, Fornication, homosexuality, submission, standards for pastors to be aligned with, qualification for pastors and deacons in the church. If you discount Paul, you discount a whole lot about Christianity to the point of what do you actually believe? Earlier I said that Paul was set apart directly from God to preach this gospel. And with this groundwork, he tells his readers that they should reject the false gospel the Judaizers Because unlike their gospel, Paul's is from God as God is working through Paul uniquely and with special purpose. So he's saying that the gospel isn't from man and it doesn't change. Paul continues to argue that it doesn't change, that it doesn't change not because of his his own testimony, but also because of what happened after he was converted and commissioned. So you have these verses uh, 15 through 17 that are you know, known by many as, a, as another great conversion story of Paul. And then you have these interesting verses right after that where he's looking like he's crisscrossing the country, left and right, or he's going to different continents and doing that. Why is he saying that he's going to Arabia? What does that have to do with any of this? What he's trying to say is the gospel that was given to him by God that doesn't change was not influenced by anyone around him. He wasn't adding to it with other unique philosophies or, or good tenets of other faiths. You know, a lot of other religions say that you shouldn't kill people, but that doesn't change the gospel itself. So he's responding to accusations and false gospels by saying that he was called out by God, gifted by God, enlightened by God, but influenced by no one but God. For the last 150 or 200 years, skepticism about who Paul is has certainly been at a unique heightened state in world history. It's amazing to read some of the the things that were said about him, that he wasn't who he said he was, that he didn't actually say the things that he clearly said, that the things that he clearly said, well, they've changed over time, and he would totally write, you know, 2 Timothy different than what he did originally. 
Paul was who he said he was. He didn't fabricate things. He was bringing in things not from other cultures, but only in the revelation of God himself. What they're accusing him of is basically what we would call the game of telephone. You know, maybe you played that in grade school. Maybe you played it on a trip. Maybe you accidentally played at the office every day where someone says something and you're passing it from person to person and all of a sudden when you're asked, hey, do you want to go to a ball game? All of a sudden the 10th person down the row says, get off my yard when it rains. You're going, whoa, this really got out of hand really fast. And they're accusing Paul of saying that he's doing that with the gospel. But Paul was uninfluenced by others. His gospel was God's revealed to him. And he has three Uh, judiciously alibis he wasn't put in the position to fine-tune the gospel or convolute the gospel or reshape it or listen to what other people are saying and then oh that that sounds really good that would that would actually make our our gospel like cool among people at the very end of verse 16 he says i did not immediately consult with anyone He only received it from the Lord. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So I went to Arabia for three years. And and I think interestingly, we we don't know all of why he went to Arabia or what he did there, but the fact that he was there for three years is pretty significant when you think of there were other people who were directly being taught by Jesus on how to live and how to teach and how to inspire people with the gospel for three years. And here is Paul defending his own apostleship, saying that he was under direct inspiration of Jesus Christ himself, and he was studying the particulars and the realities of the gospel for three years like other apostles. And he wasn't taught by other apostles there. He didn't submit himself to other apostles' teachings that we see in verse 17. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but he went away. So, in verse 18, it says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. So he went up to Jerusalem briefly. He saw Cephas, or you can call him Peter. There's, there's a whole transliteration thing, but so you can see it as Peter. Well, why did he go to Peter for 15 days? The clue there is in the text, to visit Cephas, or maybe one of your other translations says, to see Cephas. The, the translation of that is to become acquainted with or to get acquainted with. Here is, here is Paul having received a revelation from Jesus Christ. And he wants to go be and become acquainted with other people who have had that same revelation. He wants to go around them and just be with them for 15 days. I can't imagine what he would ask, you know, Peter. I don't want to speculate because I don't want to, you know, totally humanize what happened. But, you know, wouldn't you say from one of your heroes, if you could listen to one of their disciples, what, you know, what were they like? Like, I can, I can read their stuff. I can listen to their things. But, but what, what were they like, like, you know? Imagine some of my heroes of the faith. I would love to know what Paul was like, you know, in the morning. Was he grumpy like me? Because I would love that excuse, you know. Did he get hangry? Did he love the buffet? You know, things. What was he like in totality? He knew Jesus as Lord and he saw him as fully human, but he wants to see what he's like. And don't we all want to be so close to Jesus that it completely changes how we're like? So he he goes back into Jerusalem and spends 15 days with Peter. Then in verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So not other apostles, but James, the brother of Jesus. Why? Probably for the same thing. 
I mean, people who know people are typically their siblings. You know, I remember when my sister started dating the guy who became her husband. It was like a month in and he's like, yeah, but what's Allie really like? I'm like, oh, I've, I've got time, let me tell you. All wonderful things, right? Wants to be around God's people after receiving this revelation. And it's amazing, you might see it in parentheses or maybe in brackets in verse 20. It says, when I, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Here we see the, the humanness of Paul kind of come out in his letters. And Galatians is a, is a fascinating letter to read because you just see a lot of energy coming out from it. So just to start a couple of verses above, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm telling you, before God, I do not lie. This is a man who was accused of lying, was accused of being something he wasn't, according to other people, accused of, of convoluting the gospel, of changing the things that Jesus had been telling people. And so he's willing to put an oath down under a challenge against anyone that, that what he's writing, he is not lying about. The gospel cannot change. The gospel is not from man, it's from God. And then he says, he goes then to Syria in Calicula, after Arabia, Jerusalem, time with Peter and James, the text indicates immediately that he didn't waste time in going to preach and the pastor there for several years where ultimately Barnabas would join. So he's now unleashed on the Gentiles, bringing them the gospel that doesn't change. It totally transforms. It's not from man, but thankfully it's from God. And you might be looking at this with a skeptic's eye. I was doing this last night and, you know, trying to think, yeah, but what, if, like, I want to I wanna really make this work. And I'm thinking, now, this is where you'll get a lot of me. Um, so I naturally thought, well, what about cults? So one of my uh, guilty pleasures, everyone has guilty pleasures, right? So maybe you listen to pop music and you don't want your, you know, your friends to know that you listen to pop music. Or maybe you actually like figure skating and you're not supposed to, but whatever. One of my guilty pleasures is, is reading about cults. I just find them fascinating. Like, why are you doing that, you know? The county that I grew up in had the highest population of witchcraft in the state. So you're just looking at people in the suburban area going like, what, what is happening out there in the woods? Like, stop it. Like, believe in the gospel. Like, what, what do we need to talk about? That's why I thought about this. The gospel is not from man, it's from God. The gospel doesn't change, it's consistent. And I thought about Jim Jones of California in the 70s. You know, the guy who don't drink the Kool-Aid came from. He completely believed that he was under the inspiration of God to tell people to do certain things. Or maybe David Koresh in Waco, who thought that he had a unique and specific revelation that was given to him, and it doesn't conflict scriptures, which it does, and then it's totally consistent with the gospel, which it isn't, but he was telling people the same things that Paul is telling people. It's from God, and it's consistent with everything else. But here's the difference. Another tenet of the faith and another proof of the gospel is thirdly that it singularly and exclusively glorifies God. It does not glorify man. It does not bring fame or wealth or privilege to man because it's not of our own doing that it even takes effect. It glorifies God. Look at verse, verses 21 through 24. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Calicia, 
And it was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. And they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Still unknown, Paul. Literally, his face is unknown, means that he hadn't been serving under the supervision of other Jerusalem apostles, but his message was still going forth. And it wasn't until 14 years later that he stayed in Jerusalem for a long time. And during this time, he could have made a name for himself. He could have tinkered with the specifics of the gospel to make maybe the churches that he was setting up more appealing to the masses. He could have adjusted it to appease the Judaizers and the Gentiles. You know, maybe you could have this situation in the church and you can practice that. And you guys over here, you can have, you can have this practice of the faith. But isn't it good that we all kind of worship under the same roof, even though we totally worship totally different things? He could have been seeking the appeasement of man, but no, even though this people, these people wouldn't know Paul, they'd hear of him and God's work through him. And they would say, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And truly a spectacular response is what's written there in verse 24. And they glorified God because of me. Paul's reputation, once zealous for work, Once a man who was outworking everyone to seek the appeasement of God was so transformed by Christ and given a unique service in the church that he was preaching a gospel that was not from man but exclusively from God. It was a gospel that cannot be changed because it's sufficient and it's good and it's whole and it changes everything about the people's lives in front of it. And so he argues to his friends to people who he loves, that they need to hold fast to the gospel, which is true. Because the consequences of not doing that are incredibly dangerous on their own soul. So friend, I asked if you considered the gospel at the beginning and again and again. Do you think about it? Do you talk about the gospel? Do you sing about it and pray about it? Are you directed towards God because he directed his love towards you? We are so encouraged every time we hear the conversion story of Paul because we know that ultimately in defending himself and in defending in what he's doing, he is bringing glory and credit and honor to God. The particulars of the gospel glorify the Lord. The particulars of the gospel show us to be justified people, not of our own doing, but only of God's. And so uniquely, we come together tonight to remind ourselves of some of the particulars of the gospel. The the reality that Jesus Christ was crucified on his people's behalf. Where Jesus was crucified, where he was substituting himself for you because if you were to die your own death, you wouldn't survive it like he would survive it. You wouldn't be able to pay enough debt to afford the Lord looking at you and seeing you as justified. We get to celebrate that tonight. We get to to taste and eat and drink of the glory of God being reminded that God died for his people, that he knew his people from before the foundations of the world, that he called them in such a way that our natural response upon being converted was to call out to him as our father. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he ate dinner with his disciples and he looked at them and said, take, this is my body. And he took, up, or he took bread and broke it and said, take, this is my body. And he took up a cup and said, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank of it. 
And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The Lord's Supper for us in celebration tonight is a sign of the gospel strongly saying and showing that the believer is not of Satan or of the world, but the believer feasts on the reality and the glory and the gift and the mercy of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance given by Christ to his church, so we eagerly take it. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you are a sinner and converted and believe in Jesus as your Savior, you are invited to the table to take, eat, and drink. Jesus gave this sacred tradition for us as a church, not just as a symbol, but as to think forward, knowing that he will return for his people. But you cannot come to this table if you are perfect, because Jesus Christ, who alone died for our sins, is the only one of perfection. So you're invited to come. If you're not a Christian, we would just say that this meal is not for you, and I want to encourage you not to take it. We don't want to put that on your conscience to be able to think that you are okay with God if you yourself know that you are not in a right position to be declared justified with God. And if you're nervous thinking, well, like hundreds of people are going to stand up and I'm going to look really bizarre. Don't worry about it. People are standing up at all different times. But as you're sitting there, think about the realities of the gospel. Think about what it means for Jesus to love his people in such a way that he actually died for their sins. And think about what would pay the cost of your debt in your sins. Take time to pray. Take time to consider. Think about who you might talk to afterwards about this gospel. For all of us who are going to come in just a bit, Drew will lead us and sing it again and we'll partake together. So there are several tables throughout the room. Go to the one that's closest to you. There'll be bread and juice there. Take the bread and eat it there and then take the cup back to your seats. And in a moment, we'll all drink together. So I'm going to pray for us now. And then when I'm done praying, Drew is going to start uh, singing and playing after a moment of silence. So during that time of silence, it's a time, you know, as we're praying together, we're praying as a church, but during that time of silence, pray to yourself. Remember the sins that are forgiven. Remember the Christ that was given over for you. And remember that the tomb is empty, reminding us that it was fully satisfied on our behalf. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you new tonight in joy and being reminded of your love for your people, and we are so grateful that we can be reminded tonight of your return for us. We thank you for what you have done for us through Christ. We are thankful to you for, by what you have done for us by your Spirit. We are thankful to you by how your Spirit continually points us to Christ. And God, we pray that in all of our lives we bring credit and glory and honor to you. So Father, as we now take a few moments to pray, remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your glory. Remind us of the satisfaction that we exclusively have in you.